0: again and return to the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 9. While you're turning there, I'll just remind you that uh, uh, through the summer, uh, we're no longer taking a normal offering, passing the plates. There is a box in the back of the sanctuary for your offerings, if uh, that is what you wish to do this morning. We're looking at Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 10. I'll be reading through verse 17. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God, and curing those who had need of healing. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, Unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about fifty each. They did so, and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people, and they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. As we continue to work our way through this great gospel, we come now to a passage in which Jesus' compassion is vividly on display, especially in contrast to his disciples, which is so often the case. Of course, they're not so much lacking in compassion as they are very practical it's a passage in which the power of Jesus is on display quite deliberately the disciples are powerless to do anything about the situation that confronts them Jesus of course does not lack the power that is necessary and that is displayed very vividly in this account Of course, finally, the provision of Jesus (coughs) is on display here. It's that which we are going to be focusing on this morning. Uh, But I'd ask you to look for a number of things as we work our way through this passage. Those things we've mentioned, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' power, Jesus' provision, I know that some of us are here today fighting a battle. We're fighting a battle in the soul to believe that Jesus is enough. And that battle is fought for different reasons. Some of you have lost something or someone. And that loss has drawn you into a battle to believe whether or not Jesus is enough because the loss is so great. And you need to remember what the scripture tells us in those cases. Be still, my soul. At those times when we doubt We don't need anything new. When we're fighting the battle for faith, we simply need to go back to what we already know. We need to be still and remember that which has always been true. Some are in a battle to believe that Jesus is enough, not because of what you've lost, perhaps, but because of what you have. YOU LOVE WHAT YOU HAVE SO MUCH, JESUS IS TANGENTIAL. WE FORGET WHAT OUR NEED REALLY IS. WE BELIEVE HIM, WE BELIEVE THE GOSPEL, WE KNOW OUR HEARTS OUGHT NOT BE THAT WAY. BUT THE DESIRE TO KEEP WHAT WE HAVE BY OUR OWN MEANS IS VERY POWERFUL. there may not be anything wrong with that thing. It may be a blessing from God. And yet, the temptation is there to put that thing in the place of Jesus. And we fight to keep Jesus in his rightful place. (coughs) Some of you are fighting a battle to believe that Jesus is enough because you don't have what you desire. And what you desire is something other than Jesus himself, his kingdom. Again, we would affirm, if we have trusted in Christ, that he is sufficient for our salvation. The problem comes as we continue to seek to live our lives in the light of Christ and his word. And we struggle with the problems and the trials and the suffering that come into the lives of people who are living in a fallen world. When life becomes hard for us, what we truly believe about Christ is going to be evident in our words and in our actions. And this is what we're finding in regard to the disciples in this passage. They, too, were in a battle to believe. They struggled to believe. You see that as you read through the Gospels, not just in this passage, but all through the Gospels. The disciples, in one moment, are making these wonderful proclamations about who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And then, almost immediately, they turn around and they doubt And they wonder whether what they themselves have just proclaimed is actually true. You'll remember that in the previous passage that we looked at last week, Jesus sent out the 12 on their first missionary journey, so to speak. He sent them to the surrounding villages to preach and to heal. And now the 12 have returned. And they come back, and we read in verses 10 and 11 that they begin to report to Jesus all that they had experienced while they were gone. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him, and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And so they've come back to report to Jesus, and you can imagine how that conversation went. You can imagine how excited they would have been as they recounted all the things that they had experienced as they had gone out. They went out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so perhaps for the very first time, God had accomplished miraculous things, not only through Jesus, but now through his disciples. And they come back and they tell Jesus and they recount every detail of all those who had been healed and the demons that had been cast out and how they preached the gospel and how people heard the good news of the kingdom of God and repented and believed. That's one of those spiritual mountaintop experiences. They had performed miracles in the name of Jesus. And they were still, at this point, filled with amazement as they reported all of this to the one who had sent them. And then, after they related to Jesus all of these amazing things that had happened, all these things that they had done through his name and through his power, an even more amazing thing happened. They forgot all about it. (laughs) Almost immediately, they forgot everything that had just happened. Again, you'll remember from last week, Jesus gave them some pretty detailed instructions as he sent them out. One of the things he told them was that they were to take nothing on their journey. And one of the things he very specifically mentioned was that they were not to take bread. Don't take food with you when you go. Now, of course, there was a purpose in this. The disciples were being trained to trust in God's provision for those things that they were being called to do. Jesus wanted them to learn that they could depend on him, not only to meet their spiritual needs, but also their physical needs as well. And he gave them power to heal and to preach. But in his sovereignty, he would also provide them with whatever material needs they came to require along the way. And we're told that when they had traveled to this village or that town, the people in those villages were to feed them. And so the people became the instrument of God's provision. Just as we might grow produce in our gardens. Or go to the grocery store and purchase food that has come from somewhere. Come from a factory and ultimately work your way back. It's come from somebody's farm somewhere along the way. And yet, when we sit down to eat, I trust we give thanks to God for that which we're eating. Everything else is an instrument of God's provision for us. So in this case, when the disciples went out, the villagers provided food, but the real source of the supply was Christ. God was feeding them. It's that provision which leads us into what we find in this passage this morning. So the disciples had returned from their mission. They're telling Jesus about all that happened, and together, Jesus and his disciples head off to Bethsaida. And when they do, the crowd learns where they're going, and they follow them there. And although there are times when Jesus avoids the crowd, that's not what happens here. We're told that he graciously welcomes them, and he begins to minister to them. And how does he minister to them? We're told that he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who needed healing. So he ministers to this crowd in the same way that he told the disciples to minister when he sent them out. That's what he told them to do. Preach the kingdom of God and heal Now, as he's doing this, we find that the day is coming to an end, and we have this familiar account, to many of us, of the feeding of the 5,000. And this is one of those rare miracles, one of those rare accounts in the life of Jesus that finds its way into all four of the Gospels. And this is extremely important, then, to the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. This is a great example of the truth that God's ways are not man's ways. The disciples are a very practical group of guys, sometimes too practical. We read what happens here, and we see that within the text. The day was ending, the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. They'd done an assessment, and they'd crunched the numbers, and every time they did so, they came to the same conclusion doesn't add up, we can't possibly feed all these people. Not only is there no food, but there's no money to buy food for this many people. And even if they did have money, there's no place to buy food for all of these people. So what to do? Well, the only solution the disciples could come up with was to send the people away to nearby towns. Apparently, there was a falafel king and a hummus bell nearby. But of course, we're talking about thousands of people. This event is commonly referred to, as you know, as the feeding of the 5,000, but in reality, there were far more. Verse 14 says there were about 5,000 men. So it's 5,000, and that's not even counting the women and the children who would have been there as well. So we're talking about, perhaps, who knows, 10,000 people. And the surrounding villages are not large cities. The disciples say, we're in a desolate place. Well, you don't have desolate places right outside of Manhattan, So the Apostles' solution was not much of a solution at all. Aside from the very practical matter of dinner, there is the even greater need of the people to hear the teaching and preaching of Jesus. Many of them have traveled long distances to sit under that teaching, and they were not only willing to walk a long way, they were willing to go a day without food in order to hear Jesus preach. I'll forego trying to lay a guilt trip on you in regard to that. Rather than send the people out to the villages, Jesus had another idea, a better idea. And so he says to the disciples in verse 13, you give them something to eat. And here's where we see the connection between this passage and the previous passage. These were the same twelve who had just returned from this mission that Jesus had sent them on. The mission on which they themselves, by the power of Christ, had performed miracles. This mission on which Jesus had provided them with everything that they needed, including food. And having experienced all of that, they found themselves in a battle for faith. A battle to believe fighting to believe something they could not see, something beyond the natural. And so the disciples respond to Jesus' command as if they'd never experienced his power in their lives. They said to him, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. A day before. The disciples are out healing and casting out demons and preaching. They were right in the middle of a multitude of miracles that Jesus was performing through them. They were witnessing amazing events firsthand that only God could do. And now they're looking at things from a strictly human perspective. What did we learn last week in that passage that we examined? One of the things that we ought to have learned is that Jesus provides for what he commands. That's why he sent them out and told them not to take anything. And now, such a short time later, they had completely forgotten it's a lesson, however, that others have learned over the centuries. This is the lesson that lay at the root of the fifth century controversy that sprung up when St. Augustine voiced this line from his famous prayer Grant what you command and command what you will. Augustine understood this. That's his way of saying, Lord, The only way I can do what you command me to do is if you enable me to do it. If you give me all that I need in order to obey, only then can I obey. Because Augustine understood, not only himself, but he understood all of humanity. That apart from the sovereign, gracious work of God within us, there is no hope. There is no way that we can obey him in anything. Now, there was a British monk at that time who read those words of Augustine, and he could hardly believe what he was reading. It horrified him. His name was Pelagius, and he recoiled at the idea that divine grace was necessary to perform what God commands. He just assumed because he was not biblically oriented, but philosophically oriented, that if a command is given, there must already be the ability to keep the command. But he didn't understand. If he had indeed read and grasped the scriptures, all he had to do was read the Mosaic Law and then perhaps read what paul says in galatians and he would have understood god has given his law and yet it's an impossible law no one can obey no one can keep it and that's the whole point that the law is a tutor to lead us to christ it shows us our sin that's the intent It's not a means to salvation. It's to show us that we need salvation and we can't get it on our own. God has to work within us, God has to pour out His grace upon us. We don't have the ability to obey. God always commands things that we cannot accomplish. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who's done it? Not one. Pelagius was wrong. God commands all kinds of things that we cannot do. That's why Paul tells us, in quoting the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. What does all this have to do with the disciples? Simply this, the disciples were believing like Pelagians. They were believing only in what they could see and taste and touch. They had an improper understanding of how One comes into a relationship with God. How one becomes righteous. It's not because we have the ability to obey. It's because Jesus is righteous in our place. Jesus is the only one who has ever been able to obey. And if we are now going to obey the commands of God, it is only because God is going to enable us to do so through the power of Christ and the indwelling Spirit. Now, before we come down too hard on the disciples, we need to understand that they battled for belief in the same way we do. We all have witnessed firsthand the work of God in our lives and the lives of others. At least if we are in Christ, we have. And yet how often do we find ourselves facing yet another challenge and then forgetting what God has done? How often have we forgotten that it's in our limitations that God is most glorified? It's in our weakness that he is seen to be strong. Our very limitations display the glory of God. This is what Paul understood when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So there's a real contrast here in what Luke wants us to see. When the crowd came, Jesus welcomed them. He cared for them. He healed them. He preached the kingdom to them. But Luke always says that the disciples wants to set, wanted to send them away. Because it's not only here. And it's not only Luke. You read through the Gospels, and the disciples do this over and over. You remember when parents brought their children to Jesus. You remember what the response of the disciples was. They rebuked them. They saw those families as a source of interference. Jesus saw them as the point. Now we have a choice to make here. And that choice is where we see ourselves in this story. We can see ourselves in the place of the disciples. And I can stand here this morning and shake my finger at you. And say, don't be like those disciples. And that would be a legitimate application of the text. We could have given this message a title like, People are the Point and focused on that aspect of the story, and there would be nothing wrong with doing so. If that's the application that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of this morning, then allow the Holy Spirit to use his word to address that issue in your life. People are the point. We need to care for people. When we see someone in need, we ought to not simply point them In the direction of someone else or something else that might meet their need, we ought to meet their need if we are able. If God has brought that person into your life and given you that ability, then you ought to do that in the name of Jesus. That's one application, but here's another. That first application is the result of seeing yourself in the place of the disciples, and that's good and that's right. But what if we see ourselves among the crowd? What's the application for us then? It's simply this we are never a bother for Jesus, we too can come to him. With our need, anytime, anywhere. And I know that there are some of us here this morning who need to hear that. You are never a bother for Jesus. You too can come to him anytime, anywhere. In Mark's account of this event, he says this, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. He felt compassion for them. You understand that? Is that the reality in which you walk day by day, moment by moment? Do you know and are you convinced that as you persevere through the struggles and suffering that this life brings into your experience, that Jesus has compassion for you? Because it's true. Jesus has compassion for you. And it's not a passive compassion. By that I mean it's not a compassion that looks at your situation from afar, sighs helplessly, and then moves on. Rather, the compassion of Jesus is a sympathetic and active compassion. The compassion of Jesus is sympathetic in his incarnation because he has identified with his people and experienced this fallen world as we do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy, And find grace for help at the time of our need. That is your compassionate Savior. Your sympathetic Savior. But the compassion of Jesus is also not just sympathetic, it is active. And that comes out in that passage passage of Hebrews as well. He not only sees and understands our need, he meets our need. He doesn't say, go to one of the villages and see what you can find. He says, Here, I have what you need, and I will provide it for you. And that compassion, of course, comes to us most clearly in the gospel. We are lost and dead in our sin. Our greatest need is to be found and to be made alive. And Jesus sees that need, but he doesn't tell us how to meet the need ourselves. He doesn't say, here's how you can save yourself. He doesn't say, go here, go there, do this, do that. He says, come to me. Trust in me. Rest in me. When Jesus sent the disciples out, he told them to preach a specific message. They were to preach the kingdom of God. It was the same message that Jesus had been preaching to the same message he's preaching here among the crowds. What does that mean to preach the kingdom of God? It means exactly what we mean today when we talk about preaching the gospel. It is very simply the preaching, the proclamation of Jesus. Jesus. Come to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He will meet your need. Even if you don't really need, know what your need is. Even if you don't know what your true need is. Have you come to Jesus? Has he met your need to be made alive, to be forgiven of your sin, to be reconciled to God? If so, then the next question I need to ask you is, are you still coming to Jesus? Are you still trusting in Jesus to meet your need now, today, In this moment, when the bills are coming due, when the medical tests come back, when your kids are in trouble, when you're fighting to believe, do you come to Jesus when you wonder if he's even there? This passage this morning asks us a question. It screams a question. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what Jesus has done? Have you forgotten his grace? Have you forgotten his mercy? Have you forgotten his power? The disciples had performed miracles. They'd seen all of these things. Now all they could think about was sending the crowds away to fend for themselves. If you you have come to Jesus, then you never have to fend for yourself. His disciples may fail you. Your brothers and sisters may fail you. I will fail you. Jesus won't. Jesus will meet your need. And he knows what your need is better than you do. He will never be too busy for you. He is always there. And he will always welcome you with compassion. You are never a bother for Jesus. Don't make the same mistake the disciples made. Their problem was that they were focused on the crowd and not focused on Jesus. They were focused on the need, focused on the problem, rather than Jesus. They had forgotten that Jesus had the authority to command. When he tells them to feed the crowd, they allowed the circumstances to overcome their faith. They forgot that what Jesus commands you to do, he equips you to do. It's so easy to do, to focus so much on the problem and all of its intricate details that we forget to look to Christ. And we forget that he is sufficient. We forget that we belong to him. We forget that he cares for us. We, 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 We enter into trials as if we're lost people without Christ and don't have his resources at our disposal. it's time we persevere as saved people and not cave in as if we were lost people. It's time we utilize the resources God has given us in Christ. I mentioned earlier, typically, as, as you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the most similar gospels in their narrative. That is, They are the synoptic Gospels. Those three Gospels will often tell the same stories, albeit with different emphases in slightly different ways. But this is one of the few accounts which is found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John's account, he writes this, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Philip looked at the problem. Andrew did a little bit better. Andrew was busy looking around trying to find some food. But even so, the best human wisdom and ingenuity could come up with was a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And how often we do this. All we can see are our puny, finite, resources, and abilities, while a storehouse of food waits in the power of God. Well, finally, Jesus takes charge of the situation. He reminds the disciples and shows the crowd that he is sufficient for their needs. He took the five loaves, verse 16, and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. He reminds the disciples and shows the crowd that he is indeed sufficient to meet all of their needs. The miracle itself is just a picture Of that truth. Jesus is sufficient. They don't really need bread. They don't really need fish. They're not going to starve to death. All of us can go quite a while without food. What they really needed was Jesus. We so often miss this. We think of what we need and we look at our problems. We think of what we need and we look at our material resources when all that we need is Jesus. And can I just point out for a moment that what we're talking about here and what we've been talking about is need, not want. That's important for us to remember. Need is not want, and want is not need, and we ought not confuse the two. Jesus didn't tell everyone in the crowd to stand back while he miraculously produced banqueting tables filled with an eight-course meal. He provided what they needed, and that need was met in this instance by some bread and fish, which were sufficient and given in abundance. If I was in the crowd, I would prefer a nice filet mignon to fish. But fish met the need. Abundantly. All the bread, all the fish you can eat. With 12 baskets left over. Christ is doing a number of things here in the text. He's showing everyone that his promises can be trusted. His words are as real as the food that these people ate. His promises are as real as what they experienced in their full bellies that day. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You understand what that means. Psalm is saying, don't you? Taste and see is just another way of saying, experience this. God is good, and we can see it. We can experience His goodness, we can remember His goodness. Second thing is to show his people that he alone is sufficient to meet their needs. We search and search like the disciples and we find a couple of fish when all along there is Jesus. The battle of this life is not a battle to supply our own needs, it's not a battle to work hard to meet the needs of our family. The battle in this life is a battle to believe. When Christ promised, When Christ's promises to us right now seem far off and we wonder if they will ever come to pass and life seems to be moving at light speed and trials hit us one after another and you look down and in your hand lie two fish. You look up and there's a crowd of thousands and thousands and you do the math and you crunch the numbers and there's no way you can make this work then off in the distance faintly you hear the voice of your Savior saying have the people sit down I've got this Do you believe that Jesus is sufficient? They all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, 12 baskets full. Everyone present that day, 5,000 men plus however many women and children plus the disciples, I'm assuming Jesus ate too, we'll add him in there, they all ate and they were satisfied. The Bible says that when everyone had finished, there were more leftovers than what they had started with. By far. Jesus is not interested in just barely being enough for us. He is a generous Savior. Psalm 81.10 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Don't give up the fight. It will be a fight until your last breath. A fight to believe. This is what life is. Don't give up. Fight for faith. Fight to believe that Jesus is sufficient. Fight to believe that Jesus cares. Fight to believe that Jesus will fulfill his promises. Fight to believe that for Jesus, you and your need are not a bother. You're the point. Father, do this in us. In the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our need, may we see Jesus and know that he is all that we need. In his name we ask it. Amen. Thank you.